This evening we begin a new series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. And if you've never studied the book of Nehemiah, it's a really interesting study. There's a lot of good things to learn, uh, especially a lot of examples of good leadership. One of the things we see in this book is that there was a a work that needed to be done, that God had called the man to do. And we watch and we see as we go through this book, and the theme of the book is the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. A very important time in history for the Jews because they had rebuilt their temple, as we've seen as we studied through Ezra. And they were restoring the people and reforming their religious activities and their devotion to the Lord, but still they were unprotected because they needed a wall around their city to protect them from the enemies that wanted to destroy them. And so this evening, as we begin, I'm going to open a word of prayer, and then we're going to spend a little time, a little background information that will help you to understand the book in its entirety, and then we'll also uh, get through chapter one. So that's our agenda for this evening, to try to get through the introduction in chapter one, just to give ourselves or have the Lord give us an understanding of what this book is all about and how Nehemiah was called to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you because you have given each and every one of us a work to do, a purpose, a calling. And as we fulfill that calling, we become uh, anointed and encouraged and strengthened by you to do the work you've called us to do. But there's always opposition. There's always difficulty and challenges along the way that would try to discourage us, the enemy trying to discourage us from doing the things you've called us to do. But may we remember, as this book teaches us, that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that as we remain positive and as we remain joyful and encouraged and trusting in you. And as we're of good cheer, Lord, we know that you've overcome all of our enemies. We, we know that you've overcome the world. And so, Lord, though we may be living in the darkest of times or some of the darkest of times in our nation, we know that you're in control. And so as we study this book, may we be reminded that you desire to do a work, a rebuilding work in our culture as well. And may we be inspired as we listen to your Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us and direct us forward. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nehemiah, his name means Jehovah comforts, and who doesn't need comfort today? His father's name was Hakaliah. His father's name means Jehovah enlightens. So you can immediately see this is a family that believed in God. His name, Jehovah comforts. His father's name, Jehovah enlightens. And both of those things are true. God comforts us and he enlightens us. Nehemiah was probably descended from the tribe of Judah, although we're not entirely sure. But we do know that he served Artaxerxes as the royal cupbearer to the king at the citadel of Susa. So he was, if you will, involved in government. You might even say he was a counselor or a politician in the sense that he was serving the king at the, at the king's court. He lived in Persia, and he was well known to Artaxerxes after attaining a very important position at the royal court. And he persuaded the king, as we'll see in our studies, he persuaded the king to permit him to travel to Judah for the purpose of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. He was appointed governor of Judea, that is the area where the Jews were living at that time. And we've studied this as we've gone through Ezra recently. He was appointed the governor of Judea 
by Artaxerxes. And so then he travels to Jerusalem, and we're going to see that in our study. He travels to Jerusalem, and he does that in the spring of 444 B.C. So we have jumped ahead. We'll go over some of the chronology along the way. But he was actually the last governor from Persia, as Judea was later governed by the high priest of Israel under the authority of the governor of Syria. So the Jews were being given more autonomy as they were going to rebuild their wall. They would then be able to govern themselves. And that was the goal of Persia, that they would govern themselves loyal to the king of Persia, the author of this book. Now, it's fair to say Nehemiah wrote the book, but it's also fair to say that Ezra was the historian that compiled all of the writings of all of these different individuals. There were some portions of Ezra's writings that he authored. There's some that he simply compiled. And I believe that Nehemiah was written mostly by Nehemiah, but that the history and the inclusion of Nehemiah's writings were compiled by Ezra, who is the historian that gives us so much of the history of the Jews at this time. In fact, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally a single composition. They were part of the same uh, text, volume, if you will. The Septuagint, or Greek translators, called them Esdras B, to distinguish them from other apocryphal books so named, but these books exist today as they were written in ancient times. They were divided into these two books, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Esdras in the Latin Bible, or the Latin Vulgate, but the books have existed all of this time. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are placed toward the end of the third and final section of the Hebrew Bible, and they're placed here in the historical section of our English Bibles. The writer of the 15th and 16th books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, is an anonymous compiler. That is to say, we know it's Ezra, but he doesn't necessarily bring attention to himself. He compiles all of these sources recorded by others, and he was a priest, he was a scribe, who compiled the majority of the contents, contents of all of these books, that is, not just Ezra and Nehemiah, but First and Second Chronicles as well. He had a very important role, as we saw in the study of Ezra, the book. He had an important role among the exiles that had returned to Jerusalem. He was used by the Lord to bring religious reform and prepare the people for when they could rebuild their city, when they could rebuild their walls in the near future. See, he led a group of Jewish exiles to return to their homeland in 458 B.C. That's what we studied in chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. Now we jump ahead from 458 B.C. to 444 B.C., where Nehemiah gets involved to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He worked with Nehemiah, this man Ezra. And they strengthened the people's commitment to God's law. And it's important, before you can build walls to protect the city, you have to build up the people behind those walls. You know? I mean, the people had to be built up and encouraged. They needed to be edified. And then they could build the walls to protect their way of life and protect their devotion to God as a people. One of the things that Ezra was great at doing was recording history, as I've said. And he recorded their history and the events that occurred among the exiles during his lifetime, and he also included the history that had happened before his lifetime. Now, Ezra, no doubt, authored, as we've said, the books of First and Second Chronicles, as well as Ezra and Nehemiah. So we are greatly indebted to a man who was truly committed to preserving the history of the Jews. 
And over the last many months, we've actually studied through First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and now we come to the last of those books, Nehemiah. Ezra must have written these books after he arrived in Jerusalem, shortly after he arrived in Jerusalem, in 458 B.C. The reason these books were written was to encourage reform. He was very interested in the people serving God. And when they didn't, he was heartbroken. We saw that recently. He was devastated when the people did not serve God with all of their hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Now, there are portions of the book of Nehemiah that are written in the first person. Clearly, those are the writings of Nehemiah, included by Ezra. But there are also portions of Nehemiah written in the third person. And so, history from Nehemiah, history about Nehemiah, but it gives us a great and clear picture of what was happening at this time in Israel's history. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've said, were probably composed in in what we call the intertestamental period, the early intertestamental period. That's between 458 and 400 B.C., The book of Malachi was probably written about this time as well, but after these books, there is no more scripture written for 400 years until the time of Christ, and then we have the Gospels, the Epistles, and ultimately the book of Revelation. And of course, the book of Acts is included in there as well. So this is really the end of the Jews' history before the time known as the intertestamental period, and then ultimately the New Testament, when Jesus arrives as Messiah, when he comes to earth. Now Ezra, books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, they all work together to record the return of the Jews to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon. As I've shared, and this is a bit of a recap of our studies, Ezra and Nehemiah record three phases of the Jews' return to Jerusalem from 538 B.C. to 444 B.C. They didn't just all come back at once. In fact, it starts and is recorded in Ezra 1-6, through 6, where Zerubbabel, the governor, and Jeshua, the high priest, in 538 B.C., okay, so that's like almost 100 years earlier than Nehemiah, right? They return, but as they begin to build the temple, there's so much opposition, they ultimately get the building... Up, but, but not without stalling for like something like 20 years. It took them a long time to get that done because of the enemies that opposed them. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, which we studied recently, Ezra led the people, the priests, and many of the Levites back to Jerusalem with the purpose of bringing reform. That took place in 458 BC. And then, of course, Nehemiah 1 through 13 records the return led by Nehemiah following a decree by Artaxerxes, which is a very important decree because it was prophesied by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9. But that takes place again in 444 B.C. So that gives you a little bit of a survey of the history. Uh, Some of the book of Nehemiah was clearly written by Nehemiah himself, though I believe much of it had been written or compiled by Ezra, a reliable historical source for us to study and start our study this evening. Now, the book falls into two main divisions. We have chapters 1 through 6, which record the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. That's the main theme of this book. And then in chapters 7 through 13, we have a record of all of the reforms in Jerusalem that took place after Nehemiah's uh, arrival. So there was a revival, and the people really started to serve the Lord because they had good, strong leadership. Good, strong leadership. Incidentally, Nehemiah was a good, strong leader, who is committed to building a wall. Sounds like somebody I know. 
Nehemiah chapter 1. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed for the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see in this chapter that that was the distinguishing characteristic of Nehemiah. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. He prayed about everything. But he wasn't one of those people that just prayed. He prayed and he got stuff done. I know a lot of people that pray, but they don't always get out there and get things done. It's a, it's a balance between praying your way in action, prayer in action. And he was so good at that. And even when he was in the midst of dealing with enemies and kings and other people, he would pray. And he records in this book for us times where he would just stop and say, and so I prayed. I think that's one of the most important things to take away from this book, that when you're doing a work for God, when you're serving God, prayer is the engine of getting the work done. Don't think of us getting the work done. Think of God getting the work done through us. And think of the fact that prayer is our communication with God, giving God the opportunity to direct us, and getting information from him so that when we make decisions, they're his decisions. When we need to make a decision that affects the entirety of our ministry, we're allowing God to direct us in that way. So many people, they pray, they do, they do, they do, they do, and when things go wrong, then they pray. Not Nehemiah. He prayed, he did, he prayed, he did. And that's why he was able to accomplish so much for the kingdom of God. So, as we look at verses 1 through 3, notice the response of Nehemiah to the news that comes back through his brother and and through some of the individuals he knew from Jerusalem. We'll look at verses 1 through 3. We read, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now that's a very interesting assessment of what was taking place in Judah, or Judea, at the time that Nehemiah was serving in Persia. Here he is, all the way in Persia, very concerned about his people, but not where he would like to be, because God has him at the court. And I first want to say that there are many times where we feel that we're not in the place that we really feel called to be. For many, many years, actually 20 in its entirety, I I worked in the the corporate world. I, I worked in a job that I looked at as, well, it's just paying the bills while I prepare for ministry. And so many times I would think, eh, you know, I have to go to work, and it kind of gets in the way of doing the ministry that God has ultimately called me to. And many of you probably feel like that. I know we have some of our leaders and pastors here work full-time jobs, and I did that for many years, and quite a few years before I came on full-time here. The thing that I was somewhat aware of, but not anywhere near as aware of as I should have been, what I wasn't aware of is, is that God was preparing me in that position. That while I was there, like Nehemiah in the palace of Susa, while I was at my job, God was putting me in the right place, giving me what I needed, the education, the direction, all of the things that I needed to do the work that he had called me to do. And that was to plant this church and do the other ministries that I've done over the years. And so had I sort of 
looked at what God was calling me to at that time with disdain, I would have missed out on the preparation for the ministry God has ultimately called me to. So Nehemiah, yes, he's in Persia, but remember, he's there with a purpose. And the purpose isn't to stay in Persia, it's to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And he may not know all of that right away, but he starts to understand God's calling as he's given news and he receives news concerning the Jewish remnant and the city of Jerusalem. See, God had placed him in an extremely influential position in the Persian court. Think about the influence you have and the influential position you might be in at your job. Or maybe you serve on a city council. Or maybe you're on a board, a board of a ministry or a board of a corporation. You may be in a position to influence others, but you also may be in a position to be influenced in a good way. And Nehemiah experienced an awesome training ground in his position in the Persian court. He served Artaxerxes as the royal cupbearer to the king at the citadel of Susa. I know that because we get, we get to verse 11 of this chapter. He literally tells us, I was cupbearer to the king. And you might think, oh, so his job was to bring a cup to the king? Well, that doesn't sound like a very good job. He's a glorified waiter. I used to wait tables in school. I mean, that's what he was doing. No, 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 no. You'd miss the point. Being cupbearer to the king was a big deal. In fact, think about it this way. He was entrusted with protecting the king's food and drink. Now, why, why do you think that might be important? Well, let's face it. The easiest way to affect a regime change was to poison the king. You remember what happened when Joseph was in the prison? And there were two individuals. There was, I guess, the baker and there was the, the, the wine steward, you know, the guy who was serving the cupbearer, in a sense. Uh, these individuals were put in prison, and they were trying to figure out who the traitor was. Somebody had tried to poison the king. So they had these food tasters, and apparently something went wrong. And as a result, one of them was exonerated, right? And the other was put to death. Now, Joseph was on the periphery of that, and he had a dream, and that's what elevated him to a position, uh, one of the things that elevated him to a position of power in Egypt. But Nehemiah is also a cupbearer. He's in a very influential and important position uh, entrusted with protecting the king. You might think of him as almost secret service. He was very close to the king and trusted. You don't put somebody in this position unless you trust them completely. He ensured the king's safety from his enemies, and every leader has enemies. Given his close access to the king, he was among his closest advisors, So not only was he responsible to protect the king, he was someone that the king would see as a counselor, someone in the inner circle. And here he is in Persia, but where's his heart? His heart is in Jerusalem, but he himself is in the Persian court. And all of that's going to come to a a crossroads in, in, in the next chapter where Nehemiah begins to understand why he's in the Persian court, because he's called to go to Jerusalem. And not just anybody would be able to be given the king's blessing and support to do this. It had to be somebody who was trusted by the king, and that takes time. So Nehemiah spent, we don't know how much time, but a considerable amount of time earning the king's trust, growing close to him, earning his favor, and and being trusted by the king. Artaxerxes was able to know this man serves me, is loyal to me, and I can trust him with the future of these people known as the Jews.
We'll see that as we go through our study. But this is where it starts. Before the wall can be rebuilt, he has to prove himself. He has to be in a situation where he's prepared. I don't need to tell you that before you do any project, you have to prepare. One of the things you have to do is you have to know how it's done before you start the project. You have to read the directions in their entirety before you begin to assemble something. If you're going to paint a wall, you have to prep that wall. Nobody sees all that preparation, but it's behind the paint, and it's one of the reasons the wall looks so good. So here's the time of preparation. Maybe you're in the time of preparation in your life. It's not a glamorous time. People don't even hardly notice, but it's such an important work. And so men like Moses, Joseph, Daniel, a woman like Esther, they also served in the court of very powerful leaders. And they were being prepared and groomed for a position of leadership so that when they were called upon by the Lord to step up and do what God had called them to do, they were able to do that because they were prepared by God for the position they found themselves in. So that's what's happening here. But his brother Hanani and some others returned from Jerusalem. And they come there with, to, to, to Persia with some very distressing news. Nehemiah was clearly greatly concerned for his people in the city of Jerusalem. I believe he sent these men, his brother included, to Jerusalem to assess the situation. More than likely, he did. And clearly, he had a heart for God and for God's people. He wasn't sitting there in Persia saying, oh, those poor souls in Jerusalem. I'm just glad I got a good job here in Persia. That wasn't his heart at all. He wasn't his heart at all. He was willing and ready to give it all up to be used by God for his people. Now, he was informed that the Jews who returned to Judea were in trouble. They were living in disgrace, and he found it hard to live with that truth. He's also informed that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and burned with fire. That means, or meant, that the people there really couldn't exist as a people. Because if they were to come together and try to do what they were called to do, their enemies would be able to stop them because they did not have any protection from their enemies. They couldn't rebuild the city because without walls, they couldn't rebuild. They needed this done, and no one would do it. They had tried over the years, but their enemies had prevented this work from taking place, mostly because the enemies made up stories and lies about the Jews and essentially said, if they rebuild their wall, they're going to rebel against you. That wasn't true. So what did God do? He raised up a man named Nehemiah who was trusted by the king so that when he goes to Jerusalem, there's no question in the mind of the king that he's not a rebel, that he's loyal to the king, and he's not going to rebuild the city so that they can rebel against Persia. All of this is working behind the scenes. All of this is happening. Who knows how much of it Nehemiah is even aware of, but it's taking place. It's the work of preparation. So Nehemiah begins to cry out to God. He begins to cry out to the God of heaven on behalf of his people in the city of Jerusalem. Let's look at verse four. He says, this is his reaction. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Notice his reaction. His reaction is emotional, but it's primarily spiritual. He didn't react emotionally. He was emotionally as he reacted 
He was emotionally reacting, but he was emotional as he reacted spiritually. There are many people that react emotionally. Like when you hear about some crazy piece of legislation coming out of Washington that is an abomination and, 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 and a disgraceful decision, you get angry. But anger is not going to get the job done. You take that anger, you take that, that frustration, and what do you do? You go before the Lord, you mourn, you weep, you pray, you fast, you have a spiritual reaction because that's what's going to make the difference, not just getting angry. Just getting angry and throwing things is not going to make a change. If anything, it's going to make things worse. So what Nehemiah does with this news is he cries out to the God of heaven. This news that he received concerning Jerusalem broke his heart. And if your heart is broken for the state of our world, for the state of our nation, for the state of our culture, and this is not your reaction, you're missing it. Don't get in the flesh. You can't do a work of the Spirit in the flesh. Your fleshly reaction is understandable. It's legitimate. It's justified. But you have to Take all of that, surrender it to God in prayer. So what did he do? He sat down and wept. He mourned. He fasted. And he prayed. And we don't even know how long he prayed, but he prayed for some time. Now, we know that he received this news, according to the beginning of this chapter, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This was several months. I want to stress this several months before the events of the next chapter in the month of Nisan, in chapter 2, verse 1. Several months of what? Being in a place of humility. Weeping, mourning, fasting, praying. Months. See, so many of us, we have a sort of knee-jerk reaction. Something happens and we want to get involved immediately. But understand something. Nehemiah had been prepared in this position, but now it wasn't just the outward preparation because so much of what we need in ministry is just like logistics. You know, it's training, it's administration, it's the things we need to be able to get the job done. But there's a more important preparation. It's your heart. Because you can have all the tangible skills to be a leader, but if you don't have the heart for God's people, you're not prepared. You're not ready yet. So yes, you need to be prepared, in a leadership position, but you also need to have the right heart. Your heart quite literally has to be broken for God's people. If your heart is broken for God's people through prayer and fasting, you're going to be ready to be used by God because you have been prepared practically. Now you're prepared spiritually, and when that happens, God will move you forward. And we're going to see that next week. But for this evening, several months several months. And during this time, God gave him a heart, a true heart for his people, and a call to meet their needs. You must have a heart before you're called. You must have a heart before you're called. God presented him with the needs of his people, and and that's how a calling begins. You you see the need. You know, sometimes, it's, it's interesting, sometimes people will see a need, but they don't feel called to meet the need. And that's fine. Maybe they're not called to meet the need. But I think if God shows you the need, there's a pretty good chance that you may be called to help meet that need as he works through your life. So first thing God did was present him with the needs of his people. 
great principle in ministry is this, that we should never choose our ministry. What? Yeah, you should never choose your ministry. Oh, I choose to be a pastor. I choose to be a missionary. I choose to be a Sunday school teacher. No, you don't choose anything. God chooses our ministry. And as hard a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps, Proverbs 16, verse 9. So you may have a heart, but God has to lead you. And, and too many people, too many Christians think that they get to choose their ministry. You know, your calling is a calling. It comes from God. It's like if you get a phone call, you don't initiate the call. You pick up the receiver. And I think that's what prayer does. It allows us to pick up the receiver and listen to God's call. And that's what Nehemiah did. And our success in ministry can only be measured in one way, and that is by our submission to God's will. You don't do things for God and say, God, oh, are you pleased now? Are you pleased now? No. He wants you to do the thing he's called you to do. And what are the things he's called us to do? Well, it's very clear. He's called us to do what? Love him with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. That's pretty broad. So when you talk about an individual or specific call or ministry, you better hear from God. But the way you're going to know it's God's call is first, you're going to be prepared to meet that need. Secondly, God is going to show you the need, and then he's going to give you a heart to meet that need. It's almost going to be impossible for you not to meet that need because you're going to look at it and you're going to say, I'm the guy, I'm the girl, I'm the person that can meet this need. And you're going to want to, and God is going to confirm that he's called you to do it. So that's what happens here with Nehemiah, great principles for ministry. Our success in ministry can only be measured by our submission to God's will. You're only successful if you're doing what God called you to do. We will be affected emotionally and spiritually. You will be. If you're not affected emotionally, I really question your call. There has to be some degree of emotional response. You, you have to care. You have to have compassion for God's people. You wanna, you're going to want to see change. You're going to be committed to that. God uses our emotions in calling us spiritually, but the emotions aren't what carry us. That's just our connection to the need, but it's God working through us that meets the need. If we're called to meet the needs of others, we are going to want to meet the needs of others. We're going to feel the desire and, and want to do the thing that God has called us to do. It's not enough to say, well, God called me to be a pastor, so I guess I got to do it. No, it's going to be an interesting response because at first you may not want to, but God will show you, you're the person to do this work. And then he's going to say, I want to show you some things. And then you're going to say, I want to do this work. And then he'll call you to that work. It is impossible to lighten the load of someone else unless you have felt its burden. You can't help somebody unless you care. Put it to you that way. Like, you you can't go ahead and help somebody if you don't know what it is that they're experiencing. So many times we go through tragedies and difficulties and trials and tribulations, problems, so that when we are called to help others, we've already been there. You know, if you've lost a loved one and you're ministering to someone who's also lost a loved one, you're equipped because, you know what? God has touched your heart. If you've lost a job or, 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 or if you've had your uh, car stolen or, or whatever, you know, you've had some tragedy in your life, whatever it is that's gone on, and someone else has had that experience, you're equipped and you have the right heart. 
And so again, it's impossible to lighten another's load until you have felt its burden. So God will oftentimes bring you through difficult times to prepare you to help others going through difficult times. Nothing is wasted. No energy in this universe is wasted. And no energy in your life is a waste. I heard somebody say one time, if you're going through a trial, don't waste it. You're going through tribulation, don't waste that tribulation. It's an ideal opportunity to become more like Christ. And so this is what God was doing, but it started with God showing Nehemiah the needs of his people. Some people truly don't care, and I can tell you, if you don't care, you're not called. So there is a place for emotion. It's just not the engine, okay? That, that's God working in and through our lives. But, but emotion is a part of the process, and I think we should look for that to connect with one another and to connect with God in an emotional way, but to know that our response is spiritual. Okay, so the other thing that we've talked about, not only did God present him with the needs of his people, he prepared him. He prepared him to serve his people. Again, we've talked about it before. And here's one of the ways his heart was uh, prepared. He had to weep. He had to be broken. He had to care, but he had to care more than just care about. He had to truly be emotionally invested, spiritually invested in the welfare of God's people. Here's a principle. We must weep over the ruins before we begin to rebuild. We must weep over the ruins before we begin to rebuild. You have to look at what's in disarray and say, I want to fix this, or I at least want to help fix this, or have God work through my life to bring about the repair of whatever it is that's broken. And you have to weep over the ruins before you can begin to rebuild. It's a principle like this. It's like weeping before working. Weeping before working and despair before determination. See, if you don't experience weeping and despair, you don't have the connection necessary. Your heart hasn't been properly prepared to bring about change. So weeping before working and despair before determination. You can start working and be determined, but your heart isn't in the right place. God needs to use men and women whose hearts are in the right place. And sometimes God will work in a way that you're not really comfortable with to bring your heart to the right place, but he has to do that work. Here's Nehemiah being prepared to serve his people. And then he prays for the Jews. He prays for them, and that's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to see the need in someone's life or in the lives of a group of people, and you're not only going to see the needs, you're going to have a situation where God breaks your heart for those needs, you're going to connect with those needs emotionally, and you're going to be driven to prayer, to pray for others, because you're going to realize, I can't meet their needs. But God, you can, and I want you to use me to do it. I, I don't buy into this idea that, you know, you can do sort of a stoic approach to ministry. I, I don't think you can be anything but passionate about ministry. Whatever the ministry is you're called to, you should be passionate about it. You should be. It's interesting because, again, one of the themes of this book, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I mean, I hope you understand that if there's something or, or, or some ministry or some need that you're passionate about, that, that's something you should pray about. I love when I meet people who are passionate about stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have to be ministry. Uh, you go into a, a guitar store and you 
start to look at guitars. Many times there'll be a person working there, maybe the owner, one of the salespeople, a manager, who's very passionate about guitars. And they'll come in mostly to check, check out, make sure, you know, you're not just messing around with the guitars that you know what you're doing. So if you can play, then, you know, they won't bother you. So you start to play and you start to talk to them and you ask questions. You find out they know a whole lot about this stuff. Think about what you're passionate about. What do you like to talk about? What are the things that, that you know, make you excited? What are the things that interest you? Because those are the things that God uses in our lives. This man was passionate about helping people. He was passionate about rebuilding. Primarily, he's an administrator, but he likes to rebuild. He likes to build. So these are the things that made Nehemiah who he was. And he begins to pray. And let's read the prayer in its entirety, then we'll go over a few things. Great principles for ministry here in this book, and especially even in this first chapter. Here's what we read in verse 5. Then I said, Nehemiah says, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you notice day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That's what happened to them. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's reminding God of his promises. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. For months, Nehemiah prayed for God's favor, and an opportunity to have a conversation with Artaxerxes. What do you think he wanted to talk to him about? Clearly, and this comes out loud and clear in the next chapter, he wanted to go. He knew he would need the king's permission, but he wanted to go, and he wanted to go with the empowerment of the king and the king's support. But he didn't force the issue. He prayed, and we're told he prayed day and night. And again, for months, he prayed and prayed and prayed. And then we'll see next week, we'll see God opened up that door. But day and night, he would pray, like Daniel, praying faithfully for for God's will among his people. And you have to admire that this is a man that got things done, but not before he had prayed things done. I encourage you to pray things done before you try to do things. Because what happens when you do that, God gives you all the answers to your questions, prepares you, prepares your heart, and then gives you the opportunity to get things done. This was a man of action. But before he was a man of action, he was a man of prayer. And that's so vitally important to understand. So let's look at this prayer. He's praying for the Jews. He's praying for the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, his heart is broken for them. He wants things to be different. 
He starts by praising the Lord, the God of heaven. And I've shared with you already, at this time in the Jews' history, they called God and referred to God as the God of heaven. Before this, before the fall of the temple, it was common to refer to him as the Lord of the whole earth, or the God of heaven and earth. But after the temple was destroyed and the presence of God left the temple, documented by Ezekiel in one of his visions, the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple, and even the fact that the temple wasn't there gave them this perspective that God was in heaven and not with them on earth. And so they truly wanted to rebuild their temple. They truly wanted to have what they had once had with God. But God felt distant to them because they were in exile and they were no longer experiencing the blessings of God as a nation. So they referred to God as the God of heaven. Oh, it was true that he was still the God of earth, but that was their perspective. And he declared the Lord's faithfulness to keep his covenant of love with his people. That is, God keeps his promises. That's something you might want to remind yourself of in prayer. Notice how he starts. He praises God, and then he reminds himself, God keeps his promises. Amen? I think if you start your prayers like that, praising God, it's a very positive thing, and then reminding yourself that God keeps his promises, before you begin to pray, you're already on the right foot. And then he goes on to pray that the Lord would hear his prayer for Israel, this prayer that he prayed day and night. And what does he do? He confesses his sins and the sins of his ancestors, the sins of the Israelites. Another really important principle in prayer is that before you start asking for stuff, Start by making sure that your heart is right before God. And the best way to do that is to confess your sins. One of the things I remember growing up in the church that I grew up in is we would say, you know, I've sinned against you, Lord, in thought, word, and deed by the things I've done and the things I've left undone. And you're probably familiar with that. Maybe you said it in Latin. We said it in English. But it's a great prayer. It says it all. The things I've done and the things I've left undone. I've sinned against you. David said, I've sinned against, I've sinned against you, God, you and you alone. He understood his place before God. It's the beginning of any successful prayer is to recognize, first of all, you're praising God, but then you're confessing your sins. And then he claimed the Lord's promise. You know, you can do that. Now, God had promised that they would be scattered if they disobeyed, and they were. God was faithful to his word, but he also said, that he would return them to Jerusalem if they returned to him. So he mentions the promise of their judgment, but he also mentions the second part of that, the promise of their return and their restoration should they return to God. And he prayed, and the people had returned. So he prayed that the Lord would answer his prayer, but answer according to his will. That is so important. So many people get that wrong. You know, uh, you're praying that God would be attentive to your prayer and that he would listen to those that delight in revering his name. What you're saying is, we really want you to answer this prayer, our prayer, according to your will. Not according to our will. Nevertheless, not our will, but your will be done. That's what we might say, like Jesus prayed in the garden. And he prayed, Nehemiah prayed, that the Lord would give him favor with the king. This is what he needed more than anything else to get the job done. What is it that you need to fulfill God's call in your life? 
Ask God to show you. And once he shows you, if you're here and you need something and you don't have it, ask of God and he'll give it to you. Anything according to his will. The scripture is so clear. If you're praying according to God's will, you're going to have what you asked of him, the scripture says. We know this. John makes that clear. Jesus makes that clear. Paul makes that clear. We know that to be true. So he needed favor with the king, and he prayed for that. Why? Because he's about to make a big request. There's a big ask he's going to make, and he needs the king to approve his upcoming request. Now, he had already determined in his heart, Nehemiah had already determined that God was calling him to travel to Jerusalem. He, he knew that for sure. In fact, I really think that's why he sent his brother and others to Jerusalem to assess the situation. He had also been called by God to rebuild the wall. We know this because when we get to the next chapter, he's ready. He knows exactly what he needs and what he needs to do to get the job done. That doesn't happen unless you know God has called you and you've asked God for direction. He had been asking God for direction, and now he knew. He knew he was called to travel there. He knew he was called to rebuild the wall. And because he knew that this was God's will, when he comes up against opposition, he doesn't quit. He knew that God had called him to do this, so when things get difficult, he doesn't quit. Now, a man or a woman must first be shown their utter inadequacy, their insufficiency, and their unworthiness. It's only then that he or she can faithfully fulfill their call from God. You have to get to a place where you recognize, if God doesn't answer my prayer, I can't do a thing. If God doesn't do the work, it won't get done. Those that labor, labor in vain that do it, Psalm 127 tells us. You have to be doing what God has called you to do. And God has to be the one doing it through you. And I try so hard. You don't have any idea over 36 years how I've tried to show other pastors who are trying to do a work that God hasn't called them to do. Just please understand, if it's that difficult, if it's that challenging, if it's not happening, it's probably not God. Oh, but the enemy. Yes, sometimes the enemy will try to discourage you from doing what God has called you to do. But at the end of the day, God calls, God guides, God provides. And if God isn't providing, maybe God isn't guiding. And some people will say, oh, pastor, don't say that. You know, I'm just trying to be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to God's call or faithful to your desires? I'll tell you what, (laughs) going back now almost 20 years, if planting this church was difficult... I would have never done it. It was not difficult. It was impossible. Well, how did it get done? With God, all things are possible. See, when we reached a place where we couldn't make it happen, which was almost every day and still is, we just said, God, if this is your church, make it happen. Make it so. And he does. And that's how you begin to know. You're like, wait a minute. He said his burden is light. His his yoke is easy. Uh, Why are we struggling so much? You know what? We just need to pray. And you pray, and then God answers, and you say, oh, I guess it's true. God really has called us to do this thing. But if you keep doing things year after year, and nothing ever changes, and nothing ever happens, at least take a moment, knock yourself on the head, and say, hey, maybe, just maybe, God isn't in this. If you're wrong, God will show you he's in it. But God forbid we ask the question, God, are you really in this? We don't, we sometimes don't want to hear that answer. 
Nehemiah knew that he knew that he knew that he was called to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he knew that he knew that he was going to rebuild the wall. And what's he concerned about? What's his greatest concern? Give me favor with the king. <laughs> because I can't do this. I, I, you, you have to do the work, Lord, because I don't have what it takes. And I need the help of the king to get it done. And only you can give me favor with the king. Talk about putting out a fleece. Basically saying, God, this is your work. I always say it this way, God, this is your church. God, this is your church. And you know, you take a big, deep sigh of relief when you go, oh, that's right, it's God's church. I don't need to worry about this. You can do that with every call of God in your life, whatever it is. If God called you to marry the person you're married to, and you think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This is so difficult. This is so hard. Take a deep breath and say, well, if God has called me to be married to this person, that's a very important question you want to get right before you get married. (laughs) It's the most important question. Very important question. The question. Has God called me to marry this person? If you answer that question and you know it's true, then you got nothing to worry about. Then you just need to trust God and be faithful to continue to go to God when you needed him. When you need him, you cry out and he'll meet your needs. But how's that going to happen unless you know God has called you to do something? Now, God will bless a marriage even if you make it happen because God blesses marriage. But listen, if you know God has brought you together for a purpose, which is the question we ask every couple my wife and I meet with for premarital counseling, that is number one. If they don't answer that question, we ain't going any further. That is the question. And sadly, even though you ask that question, and even though you get some good answers, still people fail because they give up. They stop trusting God. It happens, sadly. Or sometimes I think they make it up in their head. Well, how am I going to? I'm not God. Unless God shows me that the person's lying to me, or the person is not really who they say they are, how am I going to know? I mean, sometimes God can show us those things, but at the end of the day, we have to trust that if God has called us to do something, we'll be successful. So Nehemiah just wants one thing. Lord, just let him give me the opportunity to go. Of all the things that he could be worried about, or not that he's worried about it, but praying about, it's that God would give him favor with the king. The job itself is, is, is enormous. It's, it's, it's incredible, but that's not what he's focused on. Because he knows that's easy if God sends him. What he's concerned about is, I just need the opportunity to do what you've called me to do. So that's what I'm praying for, Nehemiah might say. And he says, I'm cupbearer to the king. He was in the right position at the right time. But he had to first learn he couldn't do anything. He was inadequate and insufficient and unworthy. And once he came from a position of humility and cried out to God... Then he knew that he could do anything God had called him to do. I pray that whatever it is that God is calling you to do or has called you to do, that he would confirm that in your heart and that he would give you the ability to trust him and to pray for not only wisdom but direction in the right heart as you serve him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for using this chapter to direct us in ministry and show us the truth of your word and the truth of your call in our lives. We desire to be like Nehemiah. Whatever it is you've called us to do, whatever ministry you've called us to, Lord, we know it's not difficult, it's impossible. But with you, all things are possible. And so give us the strength, give us the faith, give us the direction, give us the wisdom, give us all that we need, and keep us humble so that when you do the work through us, we know it's not us, but it's you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.